Hello and welcome to the Pharma Forum Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. Having any chronic health condition is complicated, difficult, and scary, but add in a cultural or social stigma and you create whole new levels of challenge. In today's podcast, brought to you by Cerner and Visa, an Oracle company, I'm honored to be joined by Nate Way, Senior Evidence Generation Lead at Cerner and Visa, and James Geary, MBA and MHA, a data analyst who also lives with cerebral palsy and anxiety and depression. Cerner and Visa is launching a new product focused on helping address stigmatized health conditions. On today's podcast, I'll be discussing the issue a bit with Nate to set the stage, then I'll hand it off to Nate to talk with James about his experiences. At the end of the show, I'll come back for a quick rundown of Cerner and Visa's new offering. Welcome to the show, Nate. Thank you very much for having us. So, Nate, what exactly is a stigmatized condition? What are some of the hallmarks of where do we draw the lines of that and, uh, and some examples? Yeah, sounds like a, a good place to start. So when we talk about stigmatized health conditions, we're really talking about conditions that result in um, the individual who has the condition being devalued in some way by others around them or by society at large. There's often stereotypes, prejudice, and even discrimination that individuals with stigmatized conditions experience. And that can sometimes engender a sense of shame on the part of the individual with the condition sometimes, but the single really unifying hallmark of a stigmatized condition is that the act of devaluing the individual with the condition occurs. And that devaluation is being done on the sole basis of the fact that they have the stigmatized condition. Um, examples of stigmatized conditions, there are many, um, hundreds actually, I would argue. Um, I probably can't even summarize them all in this podcast, but just to give you a flavor, um, stigmatized conditions are often those that are uh, visible to others. Things like skin conditions, like acne or psoriasis, um, physical abnormalities like alopecia, or even physical disabilities like cerebral palsy. Uh, mental health issues are also often stigmatized. Things like depression, anxiety, bipolar, and schizophrenia for sure. Um, sexually transmitted diseases, HIV, HPV, things like that are stigmatized as well. Age-related issues are even stigmatized. We all get old, but there's still a stigma that accompanies that. Incontinence. Um, Alzheimer's, even Parkinson's is highly stigmatized. And addictions are another big class of conditions that are highly stigmatized, things like alcoholism. So when we talk about stigma, we're really not talking about a, a niche concept. Uh, it's a concept that applies to a wide variety uh, of health conditions. Yeah, that I, I dare say almost everyone probably either has or, or knows someone who has one of these conditions. Sure. So you're going to talk to James a little bit about the patient side, the experience side, um, but what what about the business side? Why is it important to think about these conditions as, as a group um, for pharma and for other uh, industry folks? And what should they be doing? Well, you know, my time in industry has been relatively limited. I've been here for about five or six years out of grad school, but it has taught me a number of things, uh, including, unfortunately, that helping people does not always align with the ability for a business to make money. Uh, but in this case, we've designed an offer that's designed to do exactly that, help people and help businesses make more money at the same time while they're doing it. And hopefully that'll encourage pharmaceutical companies to address the problems that accompany stigmatized conditions, at least more seriously than they have to date. And the general idea is, you know, that certain conditions are stigmatized. And like I said a few moments ago, are really sources of shame for those who are afflicted. And that shame engenders a lot of barriers to diagnosis and treatment uptake that are unique to stigmatized conditions. Um, this might result in stigmatized conditions being underdiagnosed or even undertreated because of the hesitancy to go in to get diagnosed or to get treated. Um, we have a new offer, the stigma offer, and it allows clients to identify drivers and barriers to diagnosis and treatment uptake for stigmatized conditions. And it's designed to produce actionable insights, importantly. Um, that will hopefully rectify the problem of underdiagnosis and poor treatment uptake in a profitable way for those companies. So in other words, we have an offer called the Stigma Offer that's designed to provide individuals with stigmatized conditions the treatment that they need to improve their health outcomes, but also importantly to simultaneously boost the bottom line for pharma by increasing the market size of individuals who are treated with their products for stigmatized conditions. Well, I'm excited to talk with you more about the stigma offer at the end of the show. But for now, I'm going to hand the reins over to you to welcome James to the show and uh, start your conversation with him. Awesome. Thanks. So, um, James, 
good to talk to you on the podcast. I'm just going to jump into a series of questions that we've set up if that's all right. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. Okay, cool. So um, instead of just talking about uh, an offer and, and this from kind of a high level abstract point of view, when we're talking about stigmatized conditions, I'm excited to, to talk to you about your own personal experiences um, with stigmatized conditions. And thank you again for agreeing to talk to me about it. it is a, I'm sure, a sensitive topic. So we really appreciate you being open with us and sharing this with everybody who'll be listening to the podcast. But to start off, what what is your what, what is your primary condition? Um, would you say my primary condition is spastic qua, uh, quadriplegic cerebral palsy with an associated diagnosis of depression and anxiety. Got it. Okay. Um, so then, I think today. Uh, what we're probably going to do is talk a little bit about the cerebral palsy, um, something that I'm sure has a huge impact on your life. Um, but then also maybe talk a little bit more about the um, comorbid anxiety and depression um, that you have a diagnosis for, since anxiety and depression are issues that really pertain to a, a lot of different people, at least within the United States now, post-COVID especially. Um, does that sound reasonable? Uh, perfectly reasonable. Okay, cool. Um, so let's start with a, a first question for you about, um, drivers and barriers maybe to your cerebral palsy treatment. I think you've told me in the past that cerebral palsy is diagnosed prenatally, um, or, or at least yours was. So there weren't really any barriers to diagnosis of that condition per se. Um, but we're wondering if you've experienced any barriers to treatment for your cerebral palsy that were maybe memorable or important to, uh, to mention, and if so, how they might have um, negatively impacted your general motivation to receive treatment for cerebral palsy? Oh, <laughs> for that, we can start with my very first memory, um, or one of them at least. That's kind of a core memory for me, is when I'm three years old and I'm in a hospital in a room with a plane with my dad and the doctor comes in and we're going through the appointment as normal. And then the doctor goes, looks at my dad and goes, you know he's going to be a burden on you for the rest of your life, right? You you know he's not going to accomplish anything or make anything of himself. And for me, that has always served as both a driver and a barrier. It's a driver in the sense that it motivates me to, of course, prove that person wrong. But it's also a barrier and this contributes to the anxiety and depression as well in that you don't know if anything can be done um, and so sometimes you question whether it's even worth trying to do something or not and for me the barriers are that oh, let me back up and say First of all, what I'm about to relate is my experience and other people with cerebral palsy, other people with disabilities out there may have a completely different experience and disagree with me and that's fine. But for me, a barrier is often thinking of myself as that burden and not wanting a potential treatment to add to the burden of those that have to help me. I don't want to be any more of an encumbrance than I already am the, to the people in my life. And so a lot of times if a treatment seems really involved, then I hesitate to pursue it because I don't want to cause any undue stress on others. Obviously for me also a barrier is just, as I said before, wondering if any, any of this is gonna have, anything I try to do is actually gonna have any impact in the end. Um, but at the same time, it's an interesting challenge, isn't it? It's, an, it's a challenge to live this life as I am, as I do have cerebral palsy that's severe enough for me to be wheelchair bound. It's an interesting challenge to live this life and want to see where you come out at the end of it, I should say. Can you prove everybody who said 
you know, it's not worth treating you. Uh, why are you going to college? You'll never get a job. So on and so forth. It's a, <laughs> it is a major driver and motivation to want to prove those people wrong. And yeah, so drivers, <laughs> drivers and barriers kind of go hand in hand with this a little bit. Yeah, that makes total sense to me, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but thanks for sharing that. I mean, to kind of uh, shift it a bit to some of the other drivers and barriers that you and I have talked about a little bit before we got on this podcast. I know you mentioned the, the fact that cerebral palsy, at least, uh, is an incurable condition. Might be one of the things that, that really uh, acts as a hindrance towards uh, receiving some of the proper treatment or at least being treated correctly by the system. Um, is that something that you, you have anything you want to speak about? Right. <laughs> because having a condition like mine, it doesn't fall neatly into the binary of, oh, we can fix this or, oh, we can't fix this. Um, which is, in my experience with some medical professionals, how they operate. And... So in terms of actually receiving care, the fact that it is not curable, often I have noticed throughout my life kind of demotivates physicians to actually want to spend time on it and understand it. <laughs> um, I tell people all the time that my goal is not to simply just exist. I don't want to just simply sit here breathing. Um, I want to live and I want to have a life. And for some medical professionals, because they can't get me up and walking out of their office door, they won't help me do the things that would be necessary to improve my function, even a little bit would make a major impact. But oftentimes it's not even considered because at the end, I'll still have cerebral palsy. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'll say it again. <laughs> Makes sense if, if you have some, if you have little faith in, in humans, I guess. But um, man, uh, I'm actually getting a little bit emotional right now just hearing you talk about it, James. I know you've talked to me about it before, but that's heavy, man. And uh, I'm sorry you have to go through that. Um, let me try to try to move us on here to a different topic before I lose it. Uh, we've mentioned in the past that um, caretakers, or sometimes even the HC, even sometimes the healthcare providers themselves, the HCPs, are overwhelmed with, uh, I guess, what you could call intensive caretaking or treatment responsibilities, um, and that maybe that also acts as a, a barrier for you towards proper treatment. Um, I think you've mentioned that every action that you take has to be strategic for that reason, because so many people are spending a lot of time trying to help you. Did you want to spend a little bit of time talking about that? <laughs> right. And this is, I have heard many times throughout my life, people question the amount of life experience I have, which is always kind of funny to me because if you have to live this life, you might have more quote-unquote life experience than anybody who's quote-unquote normal. And I say that because of what you said, in that every action of mine has to be strategic, in that I know that whatever I'm asking to do is going to be another a burden on another person. Even if they say, it's not the fact that they physically have to do something for me is by definition an extra task for them and an extra burden. So I'm constantly weighing, is this the right time to do that? Ask for this. This person seems to be in this mood. Should I ask for that? For that? And I'm also thinking, okay, if I ask them to do this, how can I negotiate to allow them to do something later in exchange for doing this, for doing the current task? 
So I have, basically when I wake up in the morning, I have to have a strategic plan in place of how I'm going to get to be where I want to be by the end of the day at the end of the day. And not just in work tasks or an errand task. I'm, just, I'm talking in moment to moment, everyday interactions, which to be truthful has given me a lot of skills, but is also fairly mentally exhausting at times. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you're highlighting, sorry for interrupting, but I think I, I was going to say, I think you're highlighting something that frankly, a lot of us take for granted, you know? Um, something that a lot of us have not experienced or have experienced very little of and probably have very little understanding of, or at least very little empathy for. Um, so that also, I think I keep repeating myself, but that also unfortunately makes sense. Um, I think there's one other kind of, uh, barrier genre of barriers, I guess we could say that you and I have briefly talked about in the past. Curious to know if you want to say more about it as well, but it's this idea that there's, um, and this doesn't just apply to cerebral palsy, and this really applies to a lot of stigmatized healthcare conditions. I should have said earlier, but here especially, a lack of social acceptance of uh, cerebral palsy within the healthcare system. Or in other words, I think you even used these words talking before, that HCPs have a bias to fix uh, cerebral palsy rather than just trying to optimize your life, which is a problem when you're talking about an incurable uh, health condition. Um, so curious to know uh, if you have any stories to share or, or anything to add about that lack of social acceptance and how it affects uh, your experience with treatment in the healthcare system. Um, yeah, being in the wheelchair as I am, I am fairly socially isolated. Um, my cerebral palsy also limits my ability to drive because my muscles are so wound up that I have a tremendous startle reflex, which is a bad thing to have if you're driving on the road. <laughs> and so because of that lack of social acceptance, um, let me start here. Oftentimes a friend living just 10 minutes away from me might as well be living on the other side of the country. Because the amount of people I have to get engaged in order to go out and do something with them often, one, oftentimes doesn't work out that well. And two, sometimes I just don't feel like making that much of an effort, depending on my energy level. Now, let's expand that out. If you take that social isolation and you expand it out into the broader societal context. You know, people with disabilities, especially extremely visible ones like mine, are not, and again, this is just my opinion, are not often participatory in larger, larger societal events. And that's not because we don't want to be, it's because we're not allowed to be. And so, because we're not participating in those larger societal events, we're not visible a lot of the time. And in the healthcare system, because we're not visible, the human bias comes in and say, well, is it really worth doing this treatment if he can't be a functioning member of society? Which I am. It's just because of the isolation, <laughs> people don't often consider me as a quote-unquote member of society. And that has an impact because doctors are human too. I mean, I appreciate all the training I have to go through and all of that. But at the end of the day, they're human too. So they have a lot of these same thoughts that other people have. And so oftentimes they're not willing to go to the lengths I'm willing to go to in terms of treatment because to them, what's the point? Or even worse, they are so afraid of touching me and having something go wrong that they want to allow me to pursue treatment. Because again, 
what's the point? Um, I believe before the podcast, I told you that I, I needed a, a hip replacement. Yeah, I remember. And none of the doctors near to me would do the hip replacement, even though it's was really not that different in terms of actual what you have to do to do the hip replacement than a normal hip replacement. So I ended up having to go all the way to New York City to get the hip replacement done, which of course was added cost for my family. And it was all because for the doctors, the potential risk was not worth what little benefit they could see me in. Because, hey, I get the hip replacement or not, I'm still going to be in the chair, right? Yeah. Okay. Understood. Um, let's try to... <laughs> Let's try to maybe look at the other side of it for a second, if that's all right. So we've talked a lot about barriers to treatment uptake for cerebral palsy that you have. Were there, I mean, just from talking to you and I think people listening to you just now for the first time, even on the podcast, will probably uh, get a flavor of what I've already gotten from talking to you is uh, that you maybe are not the typical story, or at least you don't seem like it to me, in that you seem to have a lot of self-efficacy uh, a certain degree of confidence and I guess more just a proactive approach to the whole situation. And that's not at least what I would stereotypically think of when I think of somebody in your position. Maybe that's just my own misconception, but it strikes me that maybe that acts as a sort of a driver for you uh, in terms of pushing through the system. Um, I think you and I have talked a little bit about some of the other things that might be drivers that have helped you along the way to get the treatment that you need. Did you want to maybe spend a, a minute talking about that? If you are unable to, or unwilling to face down the obstacles society puts in front of you, society doesn't change. Um, and so that's my, has always been my main driver in receiving treatment. It's not my main driver and my, what keeps me going is not, um, wanting to, you know, walk someday or, you know, be as everybody else is, I reckon that that's probably never going to happen. But what I want is to try different things and do different things and push treatments and do things that People said, would traditionally say wouldn't be a good idea for people like me to do so that the people coming after me don't have to face those same obstacles that I did. And so <laughs> people have asked me why I push myself so hard. And it's not <laughs> sometimes too hard if you ask them. <laughs> um, and it's not really for me at the end of the day. It's not for me. It's for those that are going to come after me. And really, a, a driver for me also is to be able to lessen the burden I've talked about on those people around me and maybe even use newfound skills to pay them back in some way for everything that they've done for me. I dare say that is a pretty noble approach to what many would consider a very unfortunate circumstance. And it's, it's funny, you know, when people talk about treatment of my, my condition, at least especially to me, it's often palliative and that, okay, you're in pain. Let's just get you out of pain. And no, at least for me, I can firmly say, no, that's not what I want. Um, I've been in pain literally every second that I can remember. It's, I'm in pain right now talking to you. Um, it's something that I know and it's something that I can deal with. The reduction of pain is a secondary goal to that increase in function 
and removal of obstacles. I will take the pain if I can remove those obstacles along the way. Pretty incredible, man. Pretty incredible. Um, okay. Uh, I don't have any clever bits to add on to the end of that. I think that's enough to just let that stand as is. I think you said it pretty well. Um, if it's all right with you, I'd like to kind of shift our discussion off of the cerebral palsy and focus a little bit more on um, the anxiety and depression comorbidities that you've been diagnosed with and maybe talk about some of the drivers and barriers that you experienced uh, in getting a diagnosis and, and accepting treatment for those conditions. Does that sound like a, a good place to go next? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So first off, what is it like having multiple stigmatized conditions. We're talking now about cerebral palsy, comorbid anxiety, and comorbid depression. It's a vicious loop, man, because my, my desire to lessen the burden of the impact of my cerebral palsy on other people increases my anxiety and depression. Um, to give you an example... Like, let's say I, I'm at a dinner party or something and I've had minor stomach issues throughout the day and honestly, I'm eating dinner and I feel like I might be sick. Well, A, I just can't just get up and run to the bathroom, one. And two, if I do get sick, it's going to be somebody else's problem to clean up. And so my desire not to put somebody in that position increases my anxiety, which pretty much makes it happen anyway, because my anxiety is so high. And then after it happens, uh, I'm depressed because I put somebody in that position to have to deal with that. So you can see how it kind of all feeds together in a loop. <laughs> I, think, uh, uh, I think a phrase I've heard you use in the past, I like the the pithy statements, but I think the phrase you've used in the past is one stigma plus one stigma equals more than two stigmas. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, now that we have a general idea for how that, how those things kind of feed into each other. Um, I'm curious, or I think the listeners would be curious to hear what some of the other barriers are to diagnosis and treatment uptake for anxiety and depression that, that you might've experienced in the recent past. A big barrier is the public perception of a disability like mine. Um, perhaps the biggest barrier is because people want to believe that you can overcome any obstacle because you simply exist with a wheelchair. Um, they want to believe that you're always, you know... No matter what happens, you're going to keep a positive attitude and you're going to, you know, rally and get over it. And yes, you try to do that as much as you can, but you're human. And there are some things that are just going to get to you. So even for me to admit having depression was really hard because my people's perception of me was as this, you know, mountain climber that could scale any mountain um, put in front of them. And they, honestly, some people were flabbergasted when I told them I have diagnosed depression <laughs> because of who you are supposed to be. And... Because, and I appreciate this, and I'm glad to be this person for people. People want to believe that if you can overcome your obstacles as big as they are, then theirs are, can be overcome too. And so they don't want you to take that on them sometimes. <laughs> so it sounds like you're almost afraid of letting others down, that you are an example. Exactly, yes. Okay. Like, I know, I know what I mean to you, and I don't want to take that away from you. <laughs> sure. And, and to them, or at least to some of them, 
uh, you admitting that you have anxiety and depression is in some way letting them down because in some way you've lost the battle against cerebral palsy or something like that? Is that how they construe it? That's how they construe it. And for me, that was a big barrier internally because I felt like by having depression, I'd somehow let the cerebral palsy win. And like, it was just my whole identity now. Um, And that was one, it was really hard for me to separate that. No, they're two separate things that can be dealt with, you know, in their own ways. And two, that I was still a valuable person, even if I was depressed and had cerebral palsy. <laughs> to give you a story to illustrate my pre- previous point, um, I was once asked to teach a class on disability history. And I asked at the beginning of the class, you know, what is your history with people with disabilities? And to a person, every single one of the students was, oh, you know, I worked with the kids who had a disability in my high school. Oh, they were super sweet and always happy and always fun. And then we dove into the course material and... Um, I don't have to tell you probably, Nate, but disability history is pretty dark in a lot of areas. Yes, it is. And you can almost see like the inability to take that in the student's eyes or understand that. And really that I then kind of boiled that down to my own personal experience. And yeah, a lot of times if I wasn't that you know, super happy, oh, we can do anything person, people would shut me out because that's what they look to me for. <laughs> mm, okay. Um, a couple other things that, that you and I have talked about uh, in terms of barriers or drivers to getting an anxiety and or depression diagnosis, at least in your case. Um, citizen trust is a phrase that some listeners might be familiar with, but in this context, when we say citizen trust, I'm just referring to um, your trust in the healthcare system. Um, and I know that some of your experiences with cerebral palsy might have, have colored your trust in the healthcare system. Did that affect your willingness to seek out a diagnosis for depression or anxiety in any way? It did. Um, I mean, I knew going in that I probably, before I even got the diagnosis that I probably had depression. Uh, Oh, a lot of people who are like me, especially with my severity of disability do, because let's be honest, we're living in a world that wasn't built for us to live in it. So it kind of makes sense that you would have depression. Um, but I still, because of my experience, some of my experiences with having cerebral palsy, and let me be clear, I've had great doctors too. I've had fantastic doctors. Not all my healthcare experiences have been like this, but enough of them have been, let's just do the bare minimum to get him out of our office that I was afraid of that happening with the depression as well. Sure. And I'm not saying that those two were, are necessarily correlated, but my, my brain made them correlated. <laughs> Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. And so I, I held out for as long as I could in getting a depression diagnosis just because I didn't want to be let down by the healthcare system in the same way that I'd been with cerebral palsy. Let's, uh, if it's all right with you, let's kind of shift this a bit to, um, I don't know, well, I guess we could call it some of the more positive angles on it, but focusing on some of the drivers that you might've experienced that really did encourage you to, to go and get that diagnosis and to accept treatment for your anxiety and depression, at least. Um, I know you and I have, I know you and I have talked about a couple of those things. One of them being, 
um, the fact that your symptoms are chronic as opposed to just being periodic or episodic, they're happening all the time, uh, or they were happening all the time, and that the symptoms were also severe. Um, do you want to maybe say a bit on that? Or, or if you have a story, even talk about that a bit. So the driver for me and receiving um, treatment for depression was, one, I want to give a shout out on the podcast to uh, Dr. Ward Daphne and Dr. Ganesh Gupta. Um, they were two doctors really instrumental in helping me get treatment for my depression. Um, and they were able to do so because they, they had taken the time to try and understand disabilities, um, which not every doctor does. <laughs> um, so I, I just wanted to say that up front. But me getting treatment for my depression... It was, I stated before that my goal had always been to help remove barriers for the people that will come after me. And I finally had the realization that my de depression, and I remember the exact moment it happened, um, that my depression was getting, getting in the way of that. Um, I become fairly nihilistic in, in that I started to believe what others had told me and that nothing I did would really matter. And that had led me into situations where I was extremely uncomfortable and extremely unhappy and I, I was beset by negativity in every area of my life that I ventured into that I realized that if I'm going to make good on what I've said I want to make good on, then I'm going to need to find some way to fight back against this. And that's really what my primary dr driver in getting a diagnosed a diagnosis for my anxiety and depression was to reclaim my agency in life. Um, I given it almost completely over to the disability and I'd forgotten who James was and I needed to get back there. <laughs> and so that was my primary driver in getting a treatment, getting treatment for my depression is that I need to start making progress against the disability because if I didn't, then I was going to lose myself. <laughs> I mean, the language that you're using, making progress against the disability, I think you might've said fighting back or maybe putting words in your mouth, but something to that effect. Uh, I guess one way to talk about that is that you externalized the anxiety and depression and that that helped as a, as a driver towards fighting against it, going in and getting a diagnosis mm -hmm. and treatment for it. Yeah. I think that, you know, remembering who James is and that this anxiety and depression did not define you. Sounds like it was really a key aspect of, of your journey as far as something that helped push you uh, to get the proper diagnosis and treatment for it. At least from what I'm hearing you say. Right. For me, and this is just the way my brain contextualizes things. Um, you'll talk to other people with, other disabilities are the same disability and their brands will contextualize it differently. For me, it's always been a fight. Um, I accept that the disability is a part of me and I will gladly call myself disabled, but it is not all of me. And the fight has always been to not make it all of me. <laughs> Um, I mean, in some ways I'm grateful to the disability because it's taught me a great many things I don't think I would have learned otherwise, but 
my driver for treatment has never been to, you know, feel the best or be free of pain or X, Y, or Z. It's been to be as James as I possibly could be. (laughs) Because that allows others to see you as a person beyond the wheelchair, which then helps in those other areas that I say I'm, I'm personally working for. Uh, I really like the way you put that. I was thinking maybe we even add that as a title on this podcast, although I'm not sure people would get it without the context, but to be as James as you possibly could be really kind of sums up a, a theme in a lot of what you're sharing with us today. So um, that makes good sense. Is there anything uh, else that you want to share with us before we shift the conversation back to, I hate to even go here after um, you've been so open with us about the personal stuff, but the the business side of this and what it is we're trying to do with our new offer to um, see that more people like you who have stigmatized conditions can receive the diagnosis and treatment that they need. It's what I think is really great for me with the offer is that the people who have always helped me the most in my life are the people who have tried to understand. Um, they can't fully, but to try and see things the way, the way they may look to me. And I believe that the offer is a great starting point for you know medical professionals to start down that road of understanding the kind of mental chess every person like me and with vis- with visible or invisible disabilities has to do every day just to make their life their own. And so that's why I agreed to be on this podcast and that's why I'm excited about the offer. Well, no no pressure on me and and those who are helping with this offer now, now that you said that, right? (laughs) But thank you for saying that. Uh, I mean, that is the intent uh, of this offer. That is why we created this offer was uh, not just to put it out of the ether, but to have a real impact on people who, who need help. Uh, or at least who could uh, maybe use some changes within the healthcare system to help them along the way. So thank you very much for saying that, James. And thank you even more for sharing your story with us, man. Um, that alone takes a lot of courage. I know you said you're relatively used to sharing with others in a somewhat public forum, but I find that to be a pretty unique and special uh, characteristic that you have. And I'm sure that those who are still listening through the end of this podcast feel the same way. So it's not just me uh, fluffing you up. I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us and be honest with us about what it is that you've gone through uh, in terms of your path to diagnosis and treatment uptake for your cerebral palsy, your anxiety, and for your depression. It was a pleasure, Nate. Thank you. Well, I will add my thanks to that, James. It was really, uh, really inspiring and emotional to hear you tell your story and Really glad to have you on the show. Nate, uh, let's talk a little bit about the stigma offering. So we've alluded to this, we've mentioned this, um, but but what is it and how does it work? Yeah, let's go there. So uh, in the spirit of, of James's drivers and barriers, or I guess in the spirit of his drivers, let's talk, talk about how we're being proactive in trying to help uh, fix this problem within the healthcare system. And it is indeed a problem. Um, so we do have a new offer within Cerner and Visa called the Stigma Offering. The Stigma Offer is a three-step offer. Uh, in step one, we size the problem, or in other words, we take a look at how many individuals this problem might affect. Uh, to do that, we use one of Cerner and Visa's secondary data offerings in-house. Um, it's called the National Health and Wellness Survey, which is the largest patient-reported outcome survey in the world, fielded on an annual basis. And using that annual survey, we generate nationally representative prevalence estimates of how many individuals are undiagnosed or untreated 
with a variety of different stigmatized conditions, including anxiety and depression amongst about 100 or 200 others. And uh, this is a new offering that we're putting on the table. We've already taken a look at some preliminary readouts using that data set. And I have to say the results even for me were pretty shocking, Jonah. Uh, You wouldn't believe how many individuals go undiagnosed or untreated with their stigmatized condition. Uh, I'm not really allowed to share them with you on this podcast because it's proprietary, but it is scary to see those numbers. So that's step one. We, we size the problem. How many individuals, at least focusing on the United States for now, are undiagnosed or untreated with a stigmatized condition? And in step two, uh, remember it's a three-step offer, we go a step further uh, in trying to identify some of the drivers and barriers to diagnosis and treatment uptake for uh, a stigmatized condition. And to do that, we use Cerner and Visa's behavioral science, qualitative research capabilities to take a deep dive into identifying the drivers and barriers to diagnosis and treatment uptake for individuals with stigmatized conditions. And we use custom behavioral science methodologies that are used uh, or designed to elicit honest, and honesty is really important here in this context, honest and accurate responses from individuals who might not otherwise be able or perhaps more importantly willing to be honest about the drivers and barriers to diagnosis and treatment uptake for their stigmatized condition. It's a touchy subject to talk about and getting to the truth behind some of those drivers and barriers is not always as easy as just interviewing somebody like James who will just kind of open their soul up to you and put it all on the table. It takes a special set of methodologies that are really well refined um, to get at some of those truths. And luckily at Cerner and Visa, we have a skilled team who can do exactly that and has been doing exactly that for many years. Um, So that's step two, identifying the drivers and barriers to diagnosis and treatment uptake. And in step three, the final step, we not only identify those drivers and barriers, but we quantify the extent to which each driver and each barrier matter using advanced analytics so that we can identify the most important drivers and barriers for pharma or our other clients who might use the software to focus on, um, at least in terms of increasing diagnosis likelihood and treatment uptake for those with a stigmatized health condition. There are a number of drivers and barriers. It's not going to be very effective for us just put a shotgun approach where we uh, tell the client about 20 or 30 different drivers and barriers. This offer is really designed for actionable insights. That last step where in step three, we quantify the extent to which each driver and barrier matter is really important so that we can point to the lowest hanging fruit for our clients to focus on if they're interested in increasing diagnosis likelihood and treatment uptake for those with stigmatized conditions. Right. The lowest taking fruit, but also the highest priorities, right? For sure. Yeah. So what makes this offering unique? Um, is there is there anything like it in the marketplace? And, and if so, what makes it different? And if not, why not? <laughs> sure. Well, I, I don't have full uh, visibility into every research consultancy in the world. So I, I can't say that nothing like this is out there. I personally have seen nothing like this out there. Uh, Many veterans who I work with who've been doing this for many decades, more than I have, have not seen anything like this out there per se. Um, So I do believe that it is pretty different. Um, What makes it different is a number of things, really. Um, First off, it doesn't turn a blind eye to the problem area of misdiagnosis or poor treatment uptake. Um, Instead, it really focuses on that issue and it dives into that tricky problem area of undiagnosed and untreated individuals with stigmatized conditions. There's a real problem here. I've been looking at the data and I've been talking to individuals and there's a real problem here that's been swept under the rug for far too long. And this offer is designed to at least help fix it. We aren't just looking to add on to the typical burden of illness story that you sometimes have in health outcomes work or to add on to the typical treatment pathway story or even to add on to the typical drivers and barriers, treatment uptake studies that are becoming more and more popular these days. Uh, Instead, we're really looking to expand the list of typical drivers and barriers that treatment uh, uptake studies examine, and namely to expand that list to include stigma-related factors, which really have not received the attention that they should have. And moreover, to assess drivers and barriers to diagnosis itself, rather than focusing solely on treatment uptake once somebody has already been diagnosed. And the steps leading to diagnosis, which is really the earliest step in the treatment pathway, if you think about it, is almost always ignored because of how far, uh, how because of how hard it is to form actionable insights about what to do with individuals before they present the condition to the healthcare system. But we think with this offer that we've designed a way to do that fairly easily. And this problem really shouldn't be ignored. 
even because it's difficult to address. The step to diagnosis matters a lot when you're talking about stigmatized areas in particular, where so many go undiagnosed because of their hesitancy to seek out treatment for their condition in the first place. These are really the forgotten individuals, the invisible individuals who place a heavy burden on the system, don't just suffer themselves, but also place a heavy burden on the system and are not receiving the treatment that they need for a variety of reasons that have to do with the stigmatized condition itself and the stigma that they experience. It's also different and that includes behavioral science. Some of those methodologies I was talking about or alluding to at least where we're uh, refining our ability to get at people's truths with potentially uncomfortable topics. A lot of health outcome studies won't even go there. And it's a little bit different as well in that it includes hybrid qualitative and quantitative approaches, which many health outcome studies don't, although more are starting to these days. Wow. It's really interesting. And especially, I, th- I think, what you said about, you know, diagnosis and, and you know, this idea that so many people just focus on, you know, the patients they do have in front of them. Uh, but there's this whole unknown unknown, you know, these the people we don't know that we're not treating. And you know, how do we reach out to that part of the population? So super interesting stuff. Thanks. We hope others agree. <laughs> Any final thoughts uh, from you, Nate, or or James, if you want to jump back on? No, I just really appreciate uh, being given the opportunity to be on this podcast. Um, as I said before, I'm truly excited about this offer. And I believe it has the capability to have a major impact. Yeah, I would just echo what James said. Um, I am fortunate to say that I'm proud of this offer uh, and its potential, at least to help others in need. And I would just add, uh, thank you very much, Jonah, and to Pharma Forum for the opportunity to spread the word about the stigma offer that we now have within Cerner and Visa and our abilities to help those with stigmatized health conditions. Well, thank you both for joining me. This has been a, a really special podcast and, and um and it's been uh, really great to, to have you both and, and to have this important conversation. Um, thank you all for listening also. And if you want to learn more about this offering, we'll have some information on the landing page at Farm Forum. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at Pharma Forum. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.